Well, as uh, you know, tomorrow is day of prayer, and it has fallen my happy lot to, uh, to help set things in motion for you to have a very special day of prayer tomorrow. Kelly couldn't have sung a more appropriate song or said a more appropriate word than to have said that prayer focuses on the glory of the Lord. That's what I want us to focus on today. Open your Bible then, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I want to uh, go back to the the archetypical prayer, the prayer of all prayers, the prayer that our Lord taught the disciples to pray. And I want that somewhat familiar prayer uh, to be explained to you in, I hope, an unfamiliar way that will open up some new thinking. I, I want to concentrate, actually, on the first two verses, but I want to read the entire prayer, Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. Pray, then, in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The disciples had said to Jesus, teach us how to pray, and this is the lesson. If ever there is a scripture to go to to learn how to pray, it has to be here because this is precisely what Jesus said in answer to that very question. Most of the time we focus on the last part of the prayer, the part that relates to our personal needs. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and don't lead us into temptation. I want us rather to focus on the first half of the prayer regarding our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be His name, His kingdom come, and His will be done. I want to suggest to you this morning that prayer is primarily worship. Prayer is really a form of worship. And every time you pray, your prayer ought to begin with the pattern established here, in fact, a pattern of worship. We don't really have the time to go through all of the many prayers of Scripture, but you will find this pattern repeated both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Prayer, in its proper focus, looks to God for the purpose of worship. We have today in contemporary Christianity a kind of a, a positive confession movement, a health, wealth, prosperity gospel you're very familiar with. And it reduces prayer to the idea that God is some kind of a utilitarian genie. I rub the magic lamp, he jumps out and does exactly what I tell him to do. Somehow when he saved me, he cornered himself, and now he's got to deliver the goods when I lay the trip on him as to whatever it is that I want. That couldn't be further from the truth. Prayer does not put God in a box and force Him to give me what I want. Prayer in its truest form is me seeking what God wants, not seeking what I want. Now, I want us to look at four features in this prayer, and I'll just give you a little simple outline. I hope you can remember. The first point I want you to see is God's paternity. That takes the Greek word pater that deals with God as a father. You'll notice how the prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, this is the basis of our prayer, the confidence that God is our Father. That is what gives us boldness in prayer. It is not often in the Old Testament that God is referred to as a Father, but there's one very wonderful place where He is so referred to in Isaiah 64, and I want to read it to you. 
In Isaiah 64, beginning in verse 5, Thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers thee in thy ways. Behold, thou wast angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. Here's a prayer of confession. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there is no one who calls on thy name, who arouses himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hidden thy face from us, and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. What an amazing statement. We're a mess, he says. We're trapped in sin. We're bound in iniquity. Nobody seems to be paying much attention to you. We're in a desperate situation. But we have this confidence. You're our Father. What's bound up in that? Well, all that we'd be bound up in the best of the understanding of a father's relationship to his children. Love, care, forgiveness, patience, endurance, tolerance. The only hope that Isaiah has for his nation is that God is a father who cares about them. And in his compassion and mercy, he might overlook their transgressions. I really believe that all our hope in prayer is predicated on the fact that God is our father. We don't go to God as some distant, indifferent deity. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this to a great extent in the New Testament. Every single time Jesus prayed, except one, he addressed God as Father. The only time he didn't address God as Father was when he was dying on the cross and there was separation and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only when he was bearing sin and felt that loneliness of being separated from God did he ever address God as anything other than Father. Every time Jesus prayed, he said, Father, because he knew that the answer to his prayer was predicated on the fact that God was a loving, caring Father. And so it is with us. We come to a God who is our Father. Who cares? Now, that may not sound strange to you or even new because you are raised in a Christian environment, most of you to some degree. But to the time in which Jesus spoke, this would be a startling thing to say. Particularly if you came out of a pagan culture rather than a Jewish culture. But even in a Jewish culture, this was pretty shocking. Why? Because in the Old Testament, God is never referred to as my father. In other words, no individual ever took the liberty to suggest that God might be personally his father. The only time God is referred to in the Old Testament is as the father of a whole nation, the father of Israel, but never the father of an individual. That would be presumption to assume that God was personally my father to a Jew. And for Jesus to say to the disciples, you can speak to God as your own personal father was new. In fact, the Jews were so paranoid about the holiness of God that they wouldn't even speak his name. And they invented a name for God. They wouldn't say the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God that we know as Yahweh. They said Jehovah. They invented a word to avoid even saying his name because they lived in fear of his holiness. 
it would have seemed to be presumption beyond belief for a Jew to say, My father. He was a father of the nation, but they didn't see him as their own personal father. And so there was a sense in which they were distant from God. Now, if someone were to understand this coming out of a Roman culture, it might even be more severe because the Romans perceived their deities in two ways. One would be defined by the word apatheia, from which we get apathy or apathetic. In one of the two great pre-Christian philosophies, uh, one of them being Stoicism, the other being Epicureanism, we find the, the identity of their deities. The Stoics said God has one attribute. The Stoics said God is apatheia. In other words, they said, God has the essential inability to feel anything. Interesting. And they went on to say that if God could feel anything, then God would act on his feelings. And if God felt something and acted on his feelings, then somebody who gave him those feelings was controlling him. Understand that? If God could feel emotion, then he wouldn't be God because he wouldn't be in control because something or someone gave him those feelings. And so they said, for God to be God, he must be apathetic. And so they had a passionless, emotionless, essentially indifferent God, and that's why we use the word stoic now to describe indifferent people. The other philosophy that was extant in the time was Epicureanism. To the Epicureans, the supreme quality in life was ataraxia. Ataraxia, I guess we could say, was the word serenity. Uh, to the Epicurean, you reached a point of total serenity, complete calm. And so they said, God then must be completely calm. If perfection is perfect calm, then God is perfect calm. And if God is perfect calm, then God can't be at all bothered by anything that happens to us or he wouldn't be calm. So if God is to be apathetic, and if God is to be totally serene, he has to be absolutely indifferent to man. And therefore, you certainly wouldn't go to God and appeal to him as some compassionate, caring, moved, emotional, feeling father. And so when Jesus came along and said, when you go to prayer, talk to God as a father, he was saying something that was absolutely foreign to the culture in which they were living. The Jews didn't take such liberty, and the Gentiles didn't believe such was even relevant. We've had that in contemporary philosophy. James Stewart quotes two lines from a poem of Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy, I suppose, asks what can possibly be the value of prayer because he says we have no one to pray to except, quote, the dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idle show. Pretty sad, despairing approach to life, isn't it? Voltaire's final verdict on life was, he said, it's a bad joke. Ring down the curtain, the farce is done, nobody's in charge. H.G. Wells, in one of his novels, painted the picture of a man defeated by the stress and the strain and the tension of modern life. His doctor wisely told him his only hope of returning his, uh, to sanity was to find fellowship with God. What, he said? That up there, that have fellowship with me? I would as soon think of cooling my throat with the Milky Way or shaking hands with a star. That kind of impersonal approach to God, to deity, is pretty common. 
But to the Christian, God is a loving Father. And when we go to Him in our prayers, we go to Him as such. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6 that we cry, Abba, Father. That means Papa. That means Daddy. That's a term of endearment. Now, what does this do for us? Well, listen, I'll give you a little list. First of all, in my prayer life, when I know God is a loving, compassionate, caring, feeling Father who will treat me as the best Father imaginable could ever and far beyond, when I go to God and know that, it settles the matter of fear, first of all. It settles the matter of fear. If you were a Greek and you were exposed to Greek culture, you wouldn't have any kind of an attitude toward deity except fear. The most significant Greek legend of the gods, you may remember, it, is the legend of Prometheus. Prometheus was a god. And in the days before men possessed fire, according to Greek mythology, and life without fire was a cheerless and comfortless thing because nobody could ever get warm, in pity, this god Prometheus took fire, which the gods had, and brought it down to earth and gave it to men. Well, this really made Zeus mad. Zeus was the major god, the king of the gods, and he was very angry. So he took Prometheus and he bound him by chains to a rock in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. And there he was tortured with the heat and with the cold and with the thirst. And even beyond that, Zeus sent a vulture to Prometheus and the vulture came and tore out Prometheus' liver which grew back, and every time it grew back, the vulture came and ripped it out again. And the Greeks were saying, that's what happens to a god who tries to help men. This god brought fire to men, and this is the price he paid. He was permanently chained to a rock in the middle of the sea, and the vulture kept tearing out his liver every time it grew back. So don't you ever think a god is going to come down and help anybody. The price is too high. And so their whole pantheon of deities were distant, hostile, fearsome deities. Gods are vengeful, grudging, and wicked. But our god is a loving father that settles the matter of fear it also settles the matter of hope doesn't it a loving father is going to take care of the needs of his children a loving father is going to do what is best for them it comes to to focus I think in Romans 8:28. all things work together for what for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose Matthew chapter 7 says God is our Father, and if we ask Him for bread, will He give us a stone? If we ask Him for food, will He give us a snake? No. It also settles the matter of loneliness. Since God is my Father, I'm never alone. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. It settles the matter of selfishness. The word our, he is our father, not just mine, but yours too. I can't be selfish. My prayers have to somehow blend in with yours for the good of all of us. And then he says this, our father who art in heaven, that settles the matter of resources. All the heavenly resources are available. They're all at our disposal to be used as we need them. It settles the matter of wisdom for father knows best. You see, this whole concept of God as our Father is the foundation of prayer. 
Do you remember what it says also in Matthew's Gospel that not one sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's knowledge? That word fall is interesting. If you look it up in the Greek, it is not so much the word fall as the word light or hop. He's not saying God knows every time a sparrow dies. He's saying God knows every time a sparrow hops. Every time he lands, God is that involved with a sparrow. Imagine how involved he is with his children. So as we go to prayer and as we approach prayer, we come to a loving Father, and that settles all kinds of issues. Now having looked at that, let me show you the priorities of prayer. Three of them. The priorities of prayer. First one, hallowed be thy name. This is where your prayer starts. Hallowed be thy name. That is your first petition when you pray. And it shows that the essence of prayer is worship. You're going to this God who is your Father, your loving Father, the one who has all the resources of heaven at His disposal to give to you and who will do that because He desires that everything in your life work together for good to His glory. And so you start by worshiping Him. Now this isn't some kind of a phrase like, long live the king. Hallowed be thy name is not just an epithet we throw around. It's something we need to understand. Let me give you a little thought about the word name. Name means all that God is. Just summing it up. We don't have time to go into it in detail. But name means all that God is. That's his name. My name is I am that I am, he said in Exodus. My name is standing for all that I am. So he is saying, hallowed be your person. Your identity, your character, your nature, your attributes. You. In fact, you are your name in the same way. When someone says John MacArthur, that stands for everything that I am. For everything that I am. Character, attributes, what I do, my reputation, my desires are all bound up in my identity. And so he says, I want to begin by saying, God, your name needs to be hallowed. What does that mean? When we think of hallowed, we think of dusty, cloistered hallways, long robes, dismal chants, some kind of antiquated, musty, dim church, mournful worship music, and maybe some tired traditions. But the word hallowed means holy. It just means holy, which means to be separate. Completely separate. What is this saying? Lord, I recognize that your person is utterly separate from what? From man, from sin, and I want to treat you as sacred. I want to treat you as holy. So I come into your presence in this prayer, recognizing, first of all, your paternity. That is, that you are the Father. Recognizing, secondly, your priority. That you are separate from sinners. And you are to be treated as absolutely unique and absolutely separate and utterly sacred. When a Jew prayed to God, he never just said, God... He never just said, God the Father. He always added another title of majesty. For example, a Jew would say, O Lord, Father and ruler of my life. You can find this in Jewish prayer books. O Lord, Father and God of my life. 
Or he would say, O Father, King and Great Power, Most High, Almighty God. Every day, Orthodox Jews still pray the Shemana Ezra, 18 prayers. And they start out, all 18, like this, O Father, O King, O Lord. One of the ten penitential days at the time of the Day of Atonement has a prayer called the, uh, the Abinu Milkenu. And it goes like this, O Father, our King, O Father, our King, 44 times. Well, what's the point of telling you that? Just this, that whenever a Jew prayed to God, he didn't just say God. He always added something that spoke of God's majesty, glory, uh, offer praise to him. It is to say, I want to give God the holy place he deserves. He's not just God. He's God the Holy One. He's God the, the Eternal One. He's God the Almighty One, which sets him apart. And we are to hallow God's name. When we pray to him, we pray with an attitude of worship. You are separate from sinners. You are absolutely holy. You are beyond us. You are almighty. You are majestic. And we fill up his, his character with reminiscences and remembrances and affirmations of all his wondrous attributes. There's a third element here in our prayer, and that is God's program. Before we get into our program, we are to pray, Thy kingdom come. Now, this could be a study of weeks or months in itself. But suffice it to say, at this point, we're concerned about God's kingdom, not our own domain. When I go to God in prayer, the first thing I want to do is worship Him and establish that He is great and glorious and holy and separate from sinners, and I want to come with a worshiping heart. The second thing I want to do is let Him know that what really matters to me is His kingdom, not my agenda. And so my prayer says, God, do what you want. God, accomplish your purpose. Do the thing that will advance your kingdom. What do we mean by his kingdom? Simply this, the sphere of his rule. The sphere of his rule. That's what we mean. The kingdom of God is a common term in Scripture. Past, present, and future. In the past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets were in the kingdom, according to Matthew 8:11. The kingdom already existed. It is a present form as well. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you or among you. It has a future form in the millennial thousand-year reign and then in the eternal kingdom. All it means is the sphere in which God rules. Now, he mediates that rule in different ways at different times in history. In the Old Testament, his kingdom was mediated through, originally, Adam. And before he fell, after the fall of Adam, God mediated his kingdom uh, through men, patriarchs that we know of in the book of Genesis. He mediated his rule through certain kings. He mediated his rule through priests, the uh, priestly office. He mediated his rule through certain prophets. And then he mediated his rule through the incarnate Christ, and he mediated his rule, or they became the agents of that rule, the apostles. He mediates his rule today through the Holy Spirit indwelling in the church. Always there is a form in which the kingdom is mediated or the rule is brought to men. Always also he mediates his rule through the revelation, which we know as Scripture. In other words, we mean by that he brings his orders to his kingdom through these means. Someday he will mediate his rule directly through Christ who will sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem and rule the world. 
But the kingdom is the sphere of people who are under the rule of God. And so our prayer is, God, advance your kingdom. Extend the sphere of your rule in the hearts of men and in the earth. So when you pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying for conversion. Because conversion adds to his kingdom. You're also praying for people to be committed. Because spiritual commitment enriches his kingdom. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And you're also praying for the second coming because that kingdom, too, needs to come when Christ reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. So our prayer is, Lord, advance your program through conversions. Advance your kingdom through commitment as we become more committed to that kingdom and advance your kingdom in its full glory by Jesus Christ coming again. You see, this takes me out of my own agenda, doesn't it? First of all, I'm not concerned with me, I'm concerned with God, and I exalt and glorify His name. Secondly, I'm not concerned with my agenda, I'm concerned with His kingdom. And now I'm praying on a transcendent level. And then there's a third element in this prayer, equally crucial for us, and that is the phrase, Thy will be done. We are concerned about God's paternity as the Father. We are concerned about God's priority as we worship. We are concerned about God's program, the advance of His kingdom. And fourthly, we're concerned about God's purposes. We don't say, My will be done. We say what? Thy will be done. That's how to pray, young people. Not my will, but thine be done. My prayer is for your will in my life. Not my will in your life. Thy will be done. We need to pray that way. I read a book recently which said we should never pray thy will be done. Because since we are saved, God has made us little gods, given us creative power, and we can now create and effect our own agenda. And you're a fool, it said, if you pray, thy will be done. That's absolutely opposite of what Scripture says. Jesus said, pray, thy will be done. I don't want anything God doesn't want for me, do you? I mean, do you really want to say to God, look, I don't care what you want, I want this, so give it to me no matter what you think. I don't really want that. I want only what God wants for me. Now, let me give you a little thought here. When we say, thy will be done, that doesn't mean we just sort of flop. Well, do whatever you want, God, end of prayer. Not at all. We're not saying, thy will be done out of bitter resentment. We're not saying, oh, well, God, you're going to do what you want to do anyway, so do it. We're not saying... um, Thy will be done out of some kind of passive resignation. Uh, Just, oh, well, um, I guess if this is best, uh, feel free. We're we're not saying it out of some kind of theological perspective that says, well, I I happen to be a hyper-Calvinist, and uh, consequently I know God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, so uh, God, you're in charge, so you're bigger than I am anyway, and you'll step on me if I mess around, so I'd rather not get stepped on, so just do whatever you want. When you say, thy will be done, you don't say it like that. Do you think Jesus praying in the garden 
said, Thy will be done without a tremendous amount of intensity? The Bible says he was sweating what? Blood. David Wells has an excellent statement. He said this, What then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is in essence rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is in this, its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. As such, prayer is itself an expression of the unbridgeable chasm that separates good from evil. The declaration that evil is not a variation on good, but its antithesis. In other words, David Wells is saying, when you pray, thy will be done, that is a battle. That is a rebellion against the fallenness of the world. That is a pleading with God. That sounds like this sometimes in Scripture. How long, O Lord, how long are you going to let this wickedness go on? How long until Jesus is exalted? How long until righteousness rules? We're not bitter, and so we say, ah, thy will be done. We're not passive and say, do whatever you want. We're not theologically resigned. We do not lose heart. We pray passionately, oh God, do your will. We plead with you to do your will. My background is Scottish. I've read a lot about the Scottish with curiosity and wonder. People always ask me about the heritage of the MacArthur's. I don't like to talk about it. They were rabid, wild maniacs who ran all over Scotland killing people. But there were some great heroes in Scottish history. In the days of the Covenanters, terrible things were happening in Scotland. It was really wild. And the government, um, by the most savage means, tried to crush the Covenanters out of existence. The government was savage against those Covenanters who were religious. Richard Cameron was one of the most famous and greatest of the Covenanters. So the government took his son, his little boy. And the son had notably beautiful and deft hands. The government, the forces knew this, so they took his little son and they cut off his hands and sent them to the father. It's an act of unthinkable cruelty. Richard Cameron recognized them at once as any father would. He said, these are the hands of my son. And then he wrote this. But it is the Lord's will and good is the Lord. He has never wronged me. There will come a point sometimes in our lives when very painful things happen. And we do need to say, if this is your will, so be it. But that does not mean that we fall flat on our back and our prayers become passive. Certainly, Jesus pled with God to the point of sweating blood. How are you to pray? First, recognizing that God as a loving Father is eagerly awaiting your arrival. Then, recognizing that the primary purpose of your prayer is to exalt and glorify His great name. 
And then it is to pray that His kingdom would advance. And then it is to pray that whatever He wills would be done. And you know He wills that righteousness prevail and that Jesus be exalted. And you can plead with all your passion for that. And then and only then, after all of that, and all of that is heavenly, do you come to earth and say, give us, forgive us, and lead us not. Don't start with you. Start with Him. Father, we thank You this morning.